What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. What's new in science this week? Bench Talk, the, the week, week in science. science. Dave Robertson here, and I'd like to interrupt the beginning of our regularly scheduled show this week to discuss some important breaking news. It's about the COVID-19 vaccines. To be specific, there are three instances of misinformation going around that I wanted to address. First of all, there's a conspiracy theory going around about the death of Grant Wall, who is a soccer journalist who died of a ruptured blood vessel while covering the World Cup in Qatar on December 10th, 2022. Anti-vaxxers have been saying that the COVID-19 vaccine might have played a role in Mr. Wall's death, but a full autopsy has been performed on Grant Wall's body, and his death has been found to be due to an aortic aneurysm, not COVID-19 or the COVID-19 vaccine. A similar conspiracy theory emerged with the cardiac arrest experienced by Damar Hamlin on January 2, 2023. Tamar is a football player for the Buffalo Bills, and he collapsed during a game with the Cincinnati Bengals on the football field after getting tackled. Tucker Carlson on Fox News began pushing the connection between the COVID vaccine and Mr. Hamlin's collapse before there was really any information available. And now that there is more information, it appears that there's no evidence that this cardiac arrest that Mr. Hamlin experienced is linked to any kind of vaccine that he might have received. In fact, Hamlin did receive a full body blow before his cardiac arrest. After all, we're talking about football here. And that's obviously more of an issue than whether or not he had been vaccinated. There's a research study published in 2006, long before COVID-19 was on the scene, that found more than a thousand examples of young athletes who had experienced sudden cardiac deaths during sporting events. So it's not unheard of for something like this to happen. So don't get sidetracked by these kinds of opinions. Just because someone's been vaccinated doesn't mean that every medical problem they have afterwards, even months later, is due to that vaccination. That's just not logical thinking. The second bout of misinformation has to do with whether or not the most up-to-date COVID vaccine we've got right now, called the bivalent vaccine, is truly effective against the latest substrains of the Omicron variant causing COVID-19. An opinion piece by Dr. Paul Offit was just published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, on January 11th, 2023, this seems to be discouraging the idea that this bivalent vaccine is truly worthwhile against the latest substrains of Omicron if the patient is young and healthy. Now, Dr. Offit is recommending the bivalent booster for those who are most at risk, the elderly, and those with other health problems, which turns out actually accounts for about 40% of Americans, 
but he waffles when it comes to younger, healthier subjects. But the only research he cites in his opinion are based on experiments looking at antibody neutralization in subjects exposed to pseudoviruses instead of actual live viruses. Pseudoviruses have been disarmed and they're not able to replicate in the body. Researchers do that because of safety concerns in the laboratory. So it's really a different kind of thing. And that is the problem. Now, Dr. Eric Topol just published his own opinion about this on January 11th also, and he reported eight different sources of data indicating that the bivalent vaccine is effective against live virus, even the latest substrains of COVID-19. And that's what we're actually going to be facing in the real world, not pseudoviruses. So it really does look like this bivalent booster is superior in its effectiveness against the latest subvariants of the Omicron virus. The third recent misconception has to do with whether COVID-19 vaccines are actually fueling the evolution of new substrains of SARS-CoV coronavirus. It was a January 1st editorial in the Wall Street Journal that pushed this concept. The idea here is that vaccines are allowing for the development and selection of viral mutations that can evade the current vaccines being used against them. But most experts disagree with this logic. For instance, all of the historical variants of SARS-CoV-2 virus that have emerged so far, from the Wuhan strain called Alpha, the Beta, Gamma, Delta, Omicron variants, They all first emerged in parts of the world where people were not vaccinated. Not one new variant has emerged in places where vaccines are widely used. In fact, it's really the opposite. The vaccine reduces infection rates, which is what you want. If the virus can multiply in people's bodies uncontrollably, like if the person is not vaccinated, that's where you're more likely going to see new mutations in the virus occurring that's where you're more likely going to see the evolution of new substrains, not in people who have been vaccinated. I just wanted to update you on this latest news about COVID-19. Don't be misled by false claims, provocative opinions, or oversimplifications. Get a second opinion. And now, on with the regularly scheduled show for today. Dave Robinson here, and yes, it's that time of the year again. After a two-year hiatus due to the pandemic, we're bringing it back. The top science stories of the year. Now, I've been working on this for quite a while now, scouring science journals and newspapers and magazines and professional societies and various websites I've been trying to come up with a list from as many science disciplines as I can of the most important, impactful, and interesting science discoveries and observations that occurred during the year 2022. My list is up to 60 science stories now, and I'm still adding to that list. Now, Some of them are topics we have covered before, but there's plenty of new stuff, too, And some of them have only just been publicized in the last few days. 
So with 60 stories, it's going to take me three or four weeks to get through it all, but hang in there. There was some truly amazing science done last year. So here we go. Bench Talk, the year in science. Number one, eulogies. Many notable scientists passed away this year. A developer of the measles vaccine. A pioneer in prenatal ultrasound. Another of LED lighting. The creator of the MRI. The discoverer of quasars. An early nanotechnologist. The father of computer animation and computer art. The creator of the GIF, G-I-F the co-inventor of the Ethernet, and the co-discoverer of the HIV virus. All very accomplished men and women, and all of them, unfortunately, passed away last year. But I'd like to particularly take note of two scientists who died in 2022, James Lovelock and Richard Leakey. James Lovelock was a maverick ecologist who died in July of 2022. He actually passed away on the day of his 103rd birthday. Now, in 1957, James Lovelock invented the electron capture detector. This was an inexpensive, portable, and exquisitely sensitive device that was used to help measure the spread of toxic man-made compounds in the environment. His device provided the scientific basis for Rachel Carson's seminal book, Silent Spring, which, published in 1962, served as a catalyst for the global environmental movement. His electron capture detector later provided the basis for regulation of harmful chemicals like DDT, and PCBs. Now, James Lovelock also studied chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. CFC compounds were used as propellants in aerosol cans like hairspray and were also used to cool refrigerators and air conditioners back in the 1960s, the 70s, and in the 80s. He used his electron capture detector in the late 1960s to show for the first time the widespread presence of CFCs in the atmosphere. He found a concentration of 60 parts per trillion of CFC-11 over Ireland, and in a partially self-funded research expedition in 1972, went on to measure the concentration of CFC-11 in 50 different spots on Earth. Now, he didn't realize that the breakdown of CFCs in the stratosphere would release chlorine that posed a threat to the ozone layer. That didn't come until 1974 when two other researchers who were inspired by Lovelock published their Nobel Prize winning paper on the link between stratospheric CFCs and ozone depletion. You already know about how the Earth's ozone layer is what protects life on Earth from dangerous ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Because of this role that chlorofluorocarbons have in destroying ozone, CFCs were banned globally in 1987. On a lighter note, I can tell you that for decades, James Lovelock also worked with MI5, the British Security Service. 
He invented things, and the Sunday Times described him as basically Q from the James Bond movies. But Dr. Lovelock is probably most widely known for his Gaia hypothesis, spelled G-A-I-A. The Gaia hypothesis is his idea that Earth functioned as a living organism that is, quote, able to regulate its temperature and chemistry at a comfortable, steady state, unquote. He came about this idea because he was an expert on the chemical composition of the atmospheres of both Earth and Mars, and he wondered about the high level of atmospheric stability we see here on Earth that you don't see on Mars. He theorized that it was life on Earth that was keeping the levels of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide gas all so stable over time. Just like warm-blooded animals have homeostasis, Lovelock observed that Earth does too, which led to his Gaia hypothesis. He presented his theory at a couple of scientific conferences in 1967 and 68, and that summer, a friend suggested the name Gaia after the Greek goddess of the Earth. According to the New York Times, quote, a few scientists greeted the hypothesis as a thoughtful way to explain how living systems influence the planet. Many others, however, called it New Age Pablum, unquote. While the hypothesis was quickly accepted by many in the environmentalist community, it's not really been widely accepted within the scientific community as a whole. Evolutionary biologists like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould, for instance, were very critical. They couldn't see how natural selection, operating on individual organisms, could lead to the evolution of planetary-scale homeostasis. As for me, there are things about the Gaia hypothesis I like. Instead of thinking of Earth as just some rock that happens to be supporting life, it is true that all of that biological activity has radically altered that rock, and the Gaia perspective shows us that we really need to take care of it. But I can see a problem with the semantics. It seems like the nut of the controversy is whether you think the planet Earth behaves like an independent living organism, or whether you think it is an independent living organism. I agree with the former. The Gaia hypothesis is a great metaphor. It's the idea that our biosphere acts as if it was a living entity. If you look at where life occurs on this planet, it's a sheet covering the Earth that is about 12 miles thick. 12 miles from the bottom of the deepest ocean to the top of the atmosphere where the birds are flying. I'm not sure a layer that thin covering all that rock and water really qualifies as a single living organism. So I think of the Gaia hypothesis as a brilliant allegory. Rest in peace, Dr. James Lovelock. Then there's Richard Leakey. Richard Leakey was a paleoanthropologist and fossil hunter whose discoveries of ancient human skulls and skeletons in Kenya helped cement Africa's place as the cradle of humanity. Leakey died in January of 2022 in Kenya. He was 77 years old. 
Now, his parents, Louis and Mary Leakey, are among the most famous paleontologists of the 20th century, but Richard went on to establish his own digs in Kenya and found bones of numerous ancient hominin species like Homo erectus, Homo rudolfensis, Homo ergaster, and Paranthropus and Australopithecus species. Whew. These discoveries extended our knowledge of hominin species by several million years further into the past. And Richard Leakey also trained many young anthropologists who went on to make their own important discoveries. According to one expert in the field, Leakey created, quote, an entire scientific interdisciplinary infrastructure that enabled discoveries, unquote. And he established a new model for this kind of scientific research. Not bad for someone who dropped out of high school at the age of 17 to start his own tourism business in Africa. In fact, Richard Leakey was proud to say that he never went to a university except to deliver a lecture now and then. Mr. Leakey was also a passionate conservationist with an apparently fiery personality. In 1989, he drew international attention when he took a stand against the illegal ivory trade by helping to burn Kenya's stockpile of 12 tons of ivory that was confiscated from smugglers and poachers. He did that again in 2016. So, Mr. Richard Leakey helped us discover our own roots and realize the racial unity within our species. Rest in peace, Richard Leakey. In fact, this entire episode is dedicated to all of the scientists, engineers, mathematicians, inventors, and science educators who left us in 2022. You will all be missed. And now, on with our list of top science stories of 2022. Number two, geology. A volcano in Tonga, the biggest eruption ever recorded. Now, this is on January 15th, the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haipai volcano. I hope I got that right. This volcano erupted underwater in the South Pacific Ocean. Now, volcanic eruptions don't normally send noticeable amounts of water into the atmosphere, but this one did. It sent a whopping 146 teragrams of water into the stratosphere. That's enough water to fill 58,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Number three, agriculture. Purple tomatoes approved by the USDA. Yeah, it was September of 2022 that the USDA approved the sale of a genetically modified purple tomato. While there's other purple tomatoes, especially heirloom tomatoes, that you might see in people's gardens or at local farmers markets, this tomato is different because it was purposely enhanced to provide a high level of a natural plant chemical called anthocyanin. Anthocyanin can be purplish in color and occurs in a lot of foods like blueberries and blackberries. The researchers used transcription factors from snapdragon plants to put them into the tomato plants to make them produce more anthocyanin, creating a vibrant purple color. 
Now, anthocyanin has antioxidant activity and are thought to have health benefits like reducing inflammation and cancer. And while the purple tomato tastes exactly the same as its red counterpart, it appears to have double the shelf life. So now that the USDA has approved them, the next steps for the purple tomato are FDA approval and then commercialization. You probably won't see these genetically modified purple tomatoes sold to you directly in the market. It's the tomato seed that's going to be sold to interested farmers or gardeners. So you'll have to get them that way, grow them yourself or buy them from someone else who's grown them. Next, first plants grown in soil from the moon. In May, scientists at the University of Florida successfully grew plants in soil that came from the moon, a first in human history and a milestone in lunar and space exploration. Now, there was 12 grams of soil on loan from NASA that had been collected from the Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 and 17 missions to the moon that was used in this experiment. Seeds from the plant model species called Arabidopsis thaliana, common name is mouse earcress, that's what was planted into the containers, which were really small, about the size of a thimble. And while nearly all the seeds germinated, there were apparently differences in how the plants grew in lunar soil versus the control soils from Earth. For example, some of the plants grown in lunar soils were smaller, they grew more slowly, or they were more varied in size than their counterparts. These are all physical signs that the plants were working hard to cope with the challenging chemical and structural makeup of the moon's soil. In fact, when researchers analyzed the plant's gene expression patterns, sure enough, it indicated that the plants grown in moon soil were under environmental stress. So farming on the moon? That's going to be a challenge. Topic number four, ecology. Electrical communication and fungi? New studies have revealed that mushrooms, specifically the ghost mushroom, caterpillar mushroom, split gills, and the enoki fungi, can talk to each other, so to speak, by sending electrical impulses to each other through a web of underground mycelium that's similar to the human body's nervous system. Though the mushrooms are found to utilize up to 50 words, in quote, closely resembling human language, researchers are not yet ready to directly link their communication to human speech. In other words, we don't really know what they're saying to each other. But it's hypothesized that the fungi are transmitting information to each other about injuries or environmental stress or potential food sources. Discovery of a 30,000-year-old frozen baby mammoth. In July, paleontologists working in the Yukon permafrost of Canada were astonished to come upon the most complete remains of a woolly mammoth ever recorded. Typically, they only find the bones of such creatures, but the ice in this area acted as a freezer to preserve the muscle, skin, and DNA of this female baby mammoth. It's thought that the infant lived more than 30,000 years ago 
and it's the best preserved woolly mammoth ever found in North America. This might be as close as we ever get to this fascinating, long-extinct relative of elephants. More frozen biology, the oldest DNA ever found. In early December, researchers working in Greenland's northernmost regions uncovered DNA samples from two million years ago, so that makes it the oldest DNA ever discovered. They don't know exactly what the source of the DNA is because they don't find whole organisms from that far back. You're talking two million years. Instead, it's excreted fragments of DNA from feces and urine or shed from skin. It's a mixture of DNA molecules from a lot of different organisms. But it's significant because before this discovery, the oldest DNA on Earth was only one million years old. These samples are twice as old as that. It was the frozen temperatures of that region that preserve these samples. And so never before have scientists been able to look at an ecosystem this far back into the past. And apparently it has provided some surprises so far. You know, you can determine the sequences of the DNA they found, and it turns out that this place had been home to many species never known to have existed there before. We're talking about Greenland. It provides signs of reindeer and mastodons, as well as a dense forest of trees. So this Arctic desert of northern Greenland that is there today wasn't always that way. It must have been much warmer than it is now. The researchers predict it was probably 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than today, and with lots of liquid water. And no, that's not how Greenland got its name. Greenland got its name from Eric the Red, a murderer from Iceland who was exiled to Greenland around 1000 CE, about 1000 years ago. He named it Greenland as a ruse to attract settlers to the island, although I don't know how well that worked. Then there's the largest single-celled bacterium known. Now, bacteria normally dwell in a microscopic world, but not this one species called Thiomargarita magnifica. This big boy averages about a centimeter long. That's about three-eighths of an inch, and so it's visible to the naked eye. Thiomargarita magnifica lives in the mangrove forests of the Caribbean's Lesser Antilles, and is about 50 times larger than other species of previously known large bacteria, and about 5,000 times larger than a typical bacteria. Why did this species evolve into such a giant? Well, no one knows yet. Well, darn, we've run out of time. But we'll continue our top science stories of 2022 on our next special episode of Bench Talk, The Year in Science. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, 
So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.